Jesus, you are the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega. It was by your word, God, that all things that are came into being. And it is by your word that all things that are will be restored. That though the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word endures forever. And we know that's true because you're not just a God who remained on a celestial throne as the world writhed in brokenness and pain and suffering, but you entered right into our world. You took our suffering upon yourself. And then you proved once and for all that death is not a final word for you. And that evil does not have the final word. And the suffering and pain and trauma and abuse do not have the final word. But that you, God, you hold the power of resurrection in your hands. And in dying and rising again, you share that new life with us. For all who would believe and trust in you. And we get to spend not just now, but the rest of eternity praising and thanking you, glorifying you, exalting you above everything else. And so, Lord, I, before we hear your word, I, I just want to confess to you, Lord, that many times I've looked to temporary things in this world to satisfy my heart. And I'm sorry about that that I've given my affection and worship to people, places, things, things in this world that all have an expiration date. And so Lord, in that confession, we together as a church recommit saying you are our Lord and you alone that you are our God and it is only in you that we find the joy because one day with you is better than a thousand elsewhere. And so Lord, as we worship you and as we hear your word and as we declare who you are, may, may our faith continue to grow. May our trust in you alone continue to grow and may we experience the natural byproduct of that which is joy and freedom and love walking with you in your spirit daily. I pray that your word today builds up your church, that, it, that, that and then through us, that we would have the privilege of seeing your kingdom come and your kingdom move forward in this world. God, that it would go to the margins and those who feel like they've been forgotten and who are no longer heard, and that they will see the God of resurrection in their lives too. Thank you for being our living hope. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen, amen. You may have a seat. Gosh, thank you guys. Everybody, worship team, thank you guys. Thank you for leading us in that. Well, good morning, everybody. So, um, believe it or not, we have been in the Gospel of Mark together as a church for five months. Can you believe that? Since the beginning of April, we've been in the Gospel of Mark following the story of Jesus together. And 
Next week, we're going to officially conclude uh, this series. But I want to tell you guys something that's happening beginning next week. So you all have a heads up on this. The beginning next Sunday, we as a church are going to begin a seven-day period of prayer and fasting as a congregation in order to seek the Lord together. Now, some of you say, what is that? (laughs) Well, see, to put it as simply as I can, fasting is when we intentionally choose, temporarily, to put down something in order to then make space to pick up daily time with God in prayer. Fasting is an ancient biblical practice um, that, that pe- men and women, followers of Christ throughout history, have, have chose to temporarily put down something that they tend to lean on for comfort, for satisfaction, in order to mark out time to, to depend on God in prayer and in worship. You know, many people will fast by giving up, you know, Food, whether it be all food or certain types of food. But I found in this day and age that a lot of people have also found uh, that they cut a lot of distraction out of their lives and they're able to focus on prayer when they cut out screens or social media you know, there, or alcohol, right? Like there's a number of different things that people choose according to their own conscience before God to give up temporarily in order to mark out time to spend with God. Now, what's the point of it though? Why do we pray and fast? We don't do it because we're trying to prove to God that he should bless us. All right, this is not a tit for tat, I do this and God owes me one, right? Nor do we do this because everybody else is doing it. But prayer and fasting is one of the ways that we as a church practice depending on God. This is one of the ways that we mature in our faith or our trust in God as we discipline ourselves to trust Him and lean on Him above all other things. So let me tell you just how next week is going to happen a bit. And I'll have more info coming this upcoming week, and I'll talk about it more next Sunday as well. But So not this week, but the following week, beginning on Sunday, we're going to finish up this Mark series. And then on Monday through Saturday of next week, we're going, to be, uh, we're going to have somebody on our Trinity's Facebook page at 8.30 every morning to open our day in prayer and in reading Scripture. I invite you to join us for that if you can. You can watch it live. You can watch it later on in the day. That's the beautiful thing about that. Next Wednesday, so not this Wednesday, next Wednesday, the 15th, our prayer partners here at Trinity are going to host a time of prayer here in the sanctuary from 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. You are, anyone is welcome to join. If you need prayer, they would love for you to come because they would love to pray for you. And then next Friday, the 17th, we get a chance as a church to host pastors and Christians and churches from all across the greater Boston area. They're going to come here in Trinity and we're going to lead and have a service of prayer and worship asking God to bring about a revival in the greater Boston area. All right, we're going to, this is, 
There, there are a group of pastors uh, across Boston who have been doing this for several weeks. And they asked our church, hey, could you guys host this? And we said, absolutely. So uh, come be a part of that with us. Pray with us. Seek God with us. And then that whole week will be concluded on September 19th with a special service of communion and prayer together. So... All of, I don't expect you to remember all of that. I know I just threw a lot at you, but I just want to give you a sense of what's coming. And then all of that will be reiterated on our website, social media. We'll talk about it next Sunday as well. Um, but in the meantime, just allow ourselves to start thinking, how might you engage with us as a church in seeking God together? All right, the point is that we as a church would be unified around him and then we'd grow in our dependence and faith in him, which is kind of important, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. All right. So that's coming. But now, as we turn our attention back to the gospel of Mark, we have now officially reached, after five months, the point of, of, of highest tension in this story. Literary folks would call this the climax of the story. After five months, we finally reached the cross. In the account when Jesus is crucified. Now, what we're about to read is tough. Some news channels might say viewer discretion advised, but I'm not gonna say that. Because it's vital that we see this today. Crucifixion was one of the worst. Methods of death ever concocted by the human mind. The Journal of American Medical Association in 1986 had a team of doctors study what must have happened in this, and they concluded that death by crucifixion was, in every sense of the word, excruciating. The Romans in Jesus' day wouldn't even say the word cross because it was only devised for the most debased or vilest of criminals. The Jews assumed that anyone hanging from a tree must be cursed by God. So Jew, Roman alike both would agree that it was sheer madness to assume that anybody hanging from a cross would be God. Yet that's what we believe. And my intent in looking at the crucifixion scene is not to try to shock you with the horror of it. My intent today is if this is our Lord and this is what he went through, then we have to see it and then wrestle with the question, why? And I realize we also have to see it. Because for many of us, if we're so used to hanging the cross on our neck and looking at the cross on the wall, we can easily become overly familiar or desensitized to what it means. This past week, I walked into a restaurant here in town that I've been in probably a dozen times for various lunch meetings. But because I was studying this passage this week, I couldn't help but notice that right when I walked in the door, a crucifix hanging on the wall. So like a, a figure of Jesus on the cross. I remember thinking to myself, I've been in here a dozen times. I've never noticed this, number one. And number two, he's hanging right there where people are picking up food. Like this is one of the most brutal forms of execution ever devised by human beings. And people are just picking up their food and walking right by it. 
And I've been one of them. How easy it is to just, it's there. But I want us to look at it again. So that we too have to ask, why is the cross still 2,000 years later the main symbol that we continue to put out there as for our faith and what we believe? And with that, let's look at Mark chapter 15, starting at verse 21 together. Now, if, if you want to look it up in the, one of the blue Bibles in front of you, it is page 828. And if you don't have a Bible at home, Right? Like if you don't have a Bible at all, please take one of these Bibles with you when you go today. That's our gift to you. We just encourage you to, if you take it, read it. All right? But we're going to be in Mark 15, starting at verse 1. And if you could please stand with me as we read to verse 39. Mark 15, verses 21 to 39. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha. In Latin, that same word is Calvary, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar and put it on the staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Father, as we hear your word, may it not simply hit our minds. May we not simply understand it, but may we be transformed by it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, in whom we trust. And everybody said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Guys, the crucifixion was not a religious myth or legend. The cross 
is not a symbol or just a metaphor for our faith. Jesus of Nazareth was beaten, stripped, nailed to beams of wood by Roman centurions, excruciating pain, utter humiliation. Witnesses just assumed that all of this meant that Jesus was a failure and a fraud. But instead of being embarrassed by the cross or ignoring it, Mark makes it the focal point of his whole gospel. Why? You ever thought about that? Why? Why would something so horrific and debasing be so vital from Mark's account of Jesus? See, the cross was not an accident or failure. It was God's plan. As difficult as it may be to think about this again or read again, I want us to see how Mark makes it clear in how he tells the story that Jesus' life was not taken from him, but that he chose to give it up. You see, after Jesus was beaten, flogged with leather whips, and they had these bits of bone and metal at the end of the leather, and 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 the flesh was ripped from his body. They placed a 100-pound horizontal beam called a patibulum right on his raw back. But because he had experienced so much blood loss, his heart was unable to keep up with the demands upon him. And so a man named Simon from Cyrene was forced to hoist up this 100-pound beam up the hill of Golgotha. But as Jesus makes it to the top of the hill... Oftentimes, as an act of mercy, there were women, Jewish women, who would be at the top to offer these men a, a, a spiced wine as a mild sedative to try, to try to take some of the pain away, even if infinitesimal. But notice in this moment, because Jesus did not want his mind clouded at all, he refused it. Then in this moment... He decided he was going to drink the full cup of suffering in front of him. Jesus' life was not taken. He chose to give it. And then as his arms were spread across the horizontal beam and spikes were hammered into the medial nerves in his wrists, a sign above him read, The King of the Jews! which everyone watching knew meant that he was branded as a violent revolutionary against Rome. But even though he was innocent, and Pilate knew he was innocent, Jesus did not try to defend himself. He never fought back, never wrestled away. His life was not taken. He gave it. And as Jesus was hoisted up in view of everyone, That horizontal beam that he was nailed to, it was hoisted up and nailed then to a vertical beam already in the ground. Many arrogantly mocked him, saying, come down from the cross and save yourself. But Jesus did not curse them back, and he did not come down. For he knew that if he saved himself, he wouldn't save them. His life was not taken. He gave it. You see, in 
human eyes, everything about the cross appears to be a failure and an absolute defeat, when in reality it was the fulfillment of God's plan since the beginning of time. His life was not taken. It was given. The cross was not where man's strength triumphed over Jesus, but where Jesus fulfilled the sovereign plan of God within history. And we see the ways that the Scripture, even the Old Testament, tells of this. But even before we get to the Old Testament, remember back in Mark, Jesus, by the time he arrives in Jerusalem, like he'd already told his disciples three times that he was going to be killed. He said in Mark chapter 10 that he's going to give his life as a ransom for many. At the Passover meal, he says, my body will be broken, my blood will be spilled. This was no accident. But if we look back at the grand story of Scripture, we see so many times the Old Testament just foreshadowing what was to come. Then in Genesis chapter 3, when men and women, the first man and woman sinned against God, God promised them, he said, an offspring will come. And even though Satan will bruise his heel, my offspring will crush his head. And then we see later on, we see the story of Abraham. As Abraham has his son Isaac carry that wood up to the hill, and Isaac was going to become the sacrifice, God stops Abraham's hand. He says, no, I've provided the sacrifice. And then we get to, to Egypt under Moses as the Israelites are enslaved. Pharaoh keeps saying, no, 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 I'm not letting these people go. And eventually God allows a darkness to come over the land. A deadly darkness. And he tells the Israelites, if you sacrifice a lamb and take its blood and pour it over the doorpost, he said, you will live. All of this, a foreshadowing of the lamb of God to come who will become a sacrifice for us. Before crucifixion was even invented, long before, King David spoke of a band of evil men circling around him, piercing his hands and feet, gloating over him, and dividing his garments among them as they cast lots for his clothing. And perhaps most clear of all, Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah talks about the coming of a suffering servant. One who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, yet remain silent. You see, Jesus' death was not a divine blunder. But it was a vital hinge in God's supreme redemptive plan in history. Peter even states in his letter that all of this was God's plan before even the creation of the world. If that blows your mind, it does mine too. I wish I could spend more time on how that works. But I need us to see more than anything, his life was not taken. It was the will of God he was given. And the reason why I say that, because that then begs the question of why. Why? If we see the what of the cross in Mark's gospel, then we must ask why. And at first take, when we read this story, it doesn't seem as if Mark is interested in explaining to us why. He just tells us what. But I want to show us that if we lean in a bit closer, and if we look more deeply, 
then we can see actually Mark does give us clear signs of the why of Jesus and why the cross even came. And when we look closer, what do we discover? That only the greatest love would willingly go through the darkest suffering for us. Jesus was crucified at nine. And it says at noon, a darkness covered the whole land until three o'clock. And see, this darkness was a supernatural sign of God's judgment. And remember this. While all this is happening, this is the time of the Jewish Passover. And what happened in the first Passover in Egypt we already talked about? A darkness covered the land. But in the first Passover, the darkness covered the land as judgment against Egypt for their sin, which led to the death of every firstborn Egyptian son. But this time, the darkness would cover the land. But the judgment wasn't coming against the people for their sin. But all their sin was being placed on God's own son. And then something happens that is difficult for any of us to understand and even more difficult to explain. But the best I can do is for us to understand, see, God's nature is holy. And just like light and dark can't be in the same place at the same time, holiness and sin can't be united And as the world's sin, your sin, my sin was placed on Jesus, there was something of a mysterious separation that happens between God the Father and God the Son. And if you have questions as to, like, how how does this happen within the nature of God and the unity of the Trinity in this moment, if you have those questions, (laughs) I do too, right? But it doesn't seem as if Mark is interested in explaining that right now as much as he wants us to see the effect of it on Jesus. Because right in this moment of darkness, we hear the unfiltered authenticity of Jesus' response as he lifts up on the nails in his feet in order to get a breath and cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it was common in crucifixion for, for prisoners to, to yell out, please, for mercy, or, or curse, or rage against those who are crucifying them. But see, this phrase that Jesus is crying out, he's actually quoting directly from Psalm 22, verse 1. And as we hear his words, recognizing that in this moment, Jesus doesn't renounce God. For he does say, my God, my God. But in this moment, for the first time in all of eternity, he is completely alone. And out of all that Jesus experienced, this is probably the greatest agony. And in order to try to explain this, I want you to imagine that tomorrow my neighbor comes up to me and says, forget you, I don't want to see you anymore. That would hurt, right? That would hurt. 
But eventually, you know, you could probably get over it. But if my wife came up to me tomorrow, she said, forget you, I don't want to see you anymore. Like the pain of that would be many times over what my neighbor had said. Why? Because the greater, the deeper the love in a relationship, the more the pain and torment when that relationship is broken or severed. And Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, says, So imagine this forsakenness that Jesus experienced, this loss, was between God the Father and God the Son, who had loved each other for all eternity. The greater the love, the more the torment, and there is no greater love than what they had between each other. But when we hear Jesus' question, why? Why have you forsaken me? We realize it's not just a rhetorical answer, is it? A rhetorical question. But there actually is an answer. And then we see that in this moment, the Son of God was forsaken in darkness so that you and I may be accepted in his love. We were made from the very beginning. God made you and me to be in relationship with him, a holy God, that we would know his love, love him in return, and worship him with our lives. But we know that every single one of us at some point have willfully chosen, instead of loving him, to live for ourselves. And this is called sin. And the result of that is that we are separated from God. That just as light cannot dwell with darkness, holy cannot dwell with unholy. That because of our sin, we are separated from God and destined for an eternity apart from him in death and hell. It is only just for our crimes against him. But what kind of God would then choose to send his own son to face a brutal crucifixion? Only a God who loves you and me and the world that much. Our God is not only a just judge But he loves you and me so much that he will lay aside his immunity to pain and enter into our world of flesh, tears, and death in order to become the once and for all sacrifice for for your sin and my sin. He was forsaken so that we wouldn't have to be. You see, in this moment, Jesus drank the wine vinegar, the sour wine, which represents the tainted blood of the world. And in exchange offers his pure blood to wash us clean of sin. He is the sufficient sacrifice. And how do we know that God received Christ and his sacrifice in this moment? How do we know? Because Mark said that right after Jesus breathed his last, the 82-foot tall curtain, like think about this, 82 feet, how tall is that? I don't know, it's tall. 82 feet. In the temple, this curtain 
functioned as the barrier, the boundary between people, an unholy people, and the presence of a holy God. (laughs) But in the moment that Jesus breathed his last, it says that the temple curtain was torn not from bottom to top, the work of men, but from top to bottom, the work of God. That God and God alone removed the barrier of sin between us and him. God was indeed reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting your sin and my sin against us. So when we see the brutality of the cross, we see the brutality of our sinfulness against God, but we also see the reality of God's relentless love for you, for me, for the world. That the Son of God was forsaken in darkness so that you and I might be accepted in his love. I I don't know what else to say. There's nothing left to say. But when we pause to take in the reality of the cross, it demands a response. I'm sorry, like, if you see the cross and you are unmoved by it, then you haven't seen it. Really. Because it must provoke us. Something so, like, how does it not provoke us? And I was asking the Lord this week, I was praying, I said, Lord, how, how do you want us as a church to respond to something like this? And after praying that, I had these two questions come to my mind, which I, I just, I trust her from him. The first question, if Jesus went to the cross for me, how could I not trust him with the suffering in this world, including my own? It's so easy when we are hurting, grieving, or afraid to look up at heaven and get angry with God and ask, why? Where are you? I've asked it, too. I think we've all had those moments where we wonder, why don't I feel God anymore? And then sometimes, for many of us, after we we say that or we're honest, we start to feel a little ashamed and guilty about our honesty, or we allow that to fuel a bitterness in our soul. But what I want us to get here is that when Jesus was on that cross, what does he cry out? The words of Psalm 22, verse 1. Six, no, 900 years before Jesus came, David penned these words. In those 900 years, think about how many human beings reading the Psalms cried out the same thing to God. And in this very moment on the cross, Jesus is proving once and for all that he heard every cry. And he himself is identifying with the pain and suffering in this world. That while David in Psalm 22 expresses how he feels scorned, despised, and forsaken, that Jesus came and says this is God's answer for the suffering of the world. And we see that in Psalm 22... 
David comes, and after being able to say that and express that to God, eventually he's able to say, God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. That if we have a God who is willing to undergo the worst of human suffering, pain, rejection, and forsakenness, can we not trust him with our own pain and suffering, even if we don't understand And I realize that out of all the religions in the world, out of all those who claim to be God, there's only one God who I think has the ability to speak to those who have been raped, abused, tortured, and traumatized in this world. And it's only the one who knows what suffering is like firsthand. So if we are hurting, afraid, grieving, don't allow shame or bitterness to keep you away from God. But look at the cross again as an invitation for you to bring that authentically to him. And if you don't know how to express all of that to God, man, turn to places like Psalm 22, which mentor us on how to bring our disappointment, our hurt, and our pain to God and find him in the midst of it. Pick up Psalm 22. And allow that to be a place as you look at the cross to bring all of that to him. So the first question, if I know, if I see the cross, how can I not bring my suffering to him? But two, if Jesus went to the cross for me, how could I not trust him with my life? Too many times I've decided in my heart that I'm going to give this much of my life to God, but no more. Like, I, God, I open up my house this much. I'll give away this much money. I'll talk to those people. I will go over there. But, but that's where I draw the limit. I will obey you, God, up to this point until it starts to mess up my life, Right? And so we set up boundaries between us and God. Now listen, I'm a big proponent of healthy boundaries in human relationships, okay? But we have a God who stopped at nothing to break down the boundary between us and him. Who gave everything of himself to us. And if he gave all of himself to us to bring us into relationship with him, how can we stiff arm, resist, or throw up a barrier of distrust? Now granted... It is messy when we invite people into our homes who don't think like us, don't act like us, may not believe like we do. It's risky when we step out to try to share our faith with somebody or we invite, hey, ask our coworker if we can pray for them. It's scary when we eventually step out and have to give to the point where it makes us uncomfortable. But when we look at the cross again, And we see that our God, the only way that he could have done that is if love, not fear, motivated him. Then we can say, all right, Lord, teach me how to let love pull me over the barriers that I've often placed in my life, the limitations that I've assumed are there. Lord, show me how to surrender not part but all of myself to you out of gratitude for what you've done for me. The Son of Man and of God was forsaken in darkness so that you and I may be accepted in his love. 
And if I could be honest, there are many days in my life when I've had my doubts about whether all this is real. Can I say that? Is that, is that okay to say? Yeah. Because I find that the journey of faith includes doubt, right? And there are many days where I've wondered, when I see the suffering of this world and I start to wonder, God, are you really there? When I feel the pain and the fear especially, when I feel out of control of life especially, I start to wonder, what is this? Where is God? What is he doing? But the one thing that I can't get over, the thing that I just keep coming back to time and time again is the cross. That our God took off his divine glory and submitted himself to the worst of human suffering for you, for me, for the world. And if he's a God who does that, then even when I don't understand, I can trust him. Even when I'm scared, angry, I can trust him. Even when I am not sure what's around the next corner, or I'm not sure what the cost would be, I can trust him. So my question to us is how is it that God would have you respond personally? We've been talking about following Jesus this whole series. And really, to boil it down, following Jesus means that we are learning to hear God and then respond in obedience to God. You could almost chalk up the whole Christian life to that one thing. So my question is, what is he saying to you? And how might he be calling you to respond? For some of you in here, man, you are new to the whole Christian thing, to the old Jesus thing. You, all of this is new for you. And I just want to say, man, Jesus didn't just die for my sin. He died for yours too. That he died in order to save you from the judgment of God, in order to bring you into relationship with him because he loves you that much. And we know that the consequence, the just payment for sin is death. But the gift of God through Jesus is eternal life. And the thing about a gift, you don't earn it. With your good deeds, you can only receive it. And if you've never received it, I want to invite you to do so today. You can come talk to me, one of the other pastors, or any of our prayer partners up here right after service is done in a few minutes. But please talk to somebody about it. But how is it that the Lord is specifically speaking to you right now? Let's stand and pray. Jesus. Even as a churchgoer for many years... As a pastor, I've often become desensitized to the reality of your cross. And in many ways, I feel like reading this account of, of knowing what you chose to do, Jesus. 
Man, it feels like I've been in a deep slumber and I've just been, like the lights have been turned on to the reality of who you are and your love. But Lord, as hard as it is to see, may we see the incredible news that it is. The good news that you were forsaken so that we might be accepted. And so Jesus, I pray that we would not leave the tension too quickly but that we would allow your spirit to speak to each of us right where you want to and that we'd be willing to obey out of love, not guilt, not shame, 